1: This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 361.
0: Just extremely important to me that all of the people out there who are creating good businesses and great works of art and great causes get really comfortable with drawing attention to themselves and getting people emotional around their ideas and then learning how to do it.
1: Hi there. My name is Jeff Brown and you've found the Read to Lead podcast. I launched the show nearly eight years ago to help aid in your personal and professional growth. You see, I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, Then intentional and consistent reading is a habit that you must develop and cultivate the podcast is designed to help you figure out what you should be paying attention to and my conversations with authors are designed to help you figure out whether or not this is a book you want to dive into even more deeply quick warning a lot of listeners tell me they spend more money on books than they would otherwise because they listen to this show so keep that in mind. Today we're going to talk with Michael F. Shine, that's spelled S-C-H-E-I-N, and we'll be digging into his new book, The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. Basically, why should all those using hype for nefarious reasons have all the fun? Michael and I will be digging into some of these success secrets, including things like the concept of picking a fight, as well as the importance of picking the right enemy, the advantages of talking differently than most of us do about our own accomplishments, the so-called science of hype, and much, much more. Hype and self-promotion certainly can be something that many of us struggle with. I know I have over the years, but with practice have managed to get over. Let Let me demonstrate. For example, I have a new book coming out in August of this year, August the 31st, called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. And I would love to send you a copy of it. Actually, I'd love Amazon to send you a copy of it. That's the only place it's available right now. It'll be available much more widely uh, in a few months. But if you'd like to pre-order it today, you can go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book and that will take you right to the book's entry on Amazon or you can simply go to Amazon and search Read to Lead. If you've gotten value out of the podcast over the years, then pre-ordering a copy of my book is certainly one way to show your appreciation. But I encourage you to think too who you might know in your sphere of influence that needs a book like this. Consider your team, your coworkers, your family, anyone who might benefit from the value of implementing a habit of intentional and consistent reading. That's what this book is designed to help do. Again, to see if it's right for you, and I hope you agree that it is, read to slash book. Michael F. Schein is the founder and president of Microfame Media, a marketing agency that specializes in turning consultants, entrepreneurs, and executives into celebrities by using hype concepts. Basically, he helps idea companies get famous in their industries. Some of his clients include eBay, LinkedIn, and the University of Pennsylvania. And his writing has appeared in Fortune and Forbes, I'm not jealous, Inc., uh, Psychology Today, and Huffington Post. He's also an international speaker as well. His new book is called The Hype Handbook, 12 Indispensable Success Secrets from the World's Greatest Propagandists, Self-Promoters, Cult Leaders, Mischief Makers, and Boundary Breakers. I am excited to welcome him to the Read to Lead podcast. Michael, thank you so much for being here.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Whenever I get to have a conversation, that's about reading and books. That is one of my favorite things to do.
1: (laughs) Well, you've come to the right place for that, (laughs) for sure. Well, I thought a good place to start would just sort of unpack this idea of hype, or at least how you define, Michael, hype exactly, and how it's not necessarily in and of itself, though it may sound like it to many of us, an immoral uh, force.
0: Yeah. You know, I am well aware that when most people think of the word hype, they think there are negative connotations yeah. to that word. You know, a, a lot of times people think of that as at best when there's something that doesn't really have much substance blowing a lot of smoke around <laughs> it to, to, to blow it up. Right. But, yeah. you know, there's one community where that's never been the case. And that's the hip hop community. There, mm-hmm. There's the role of, of, of the hype man who was very much a positive entity. Uh, they're, they're an official member of the group. They get the crowd and the audiences, you know, extremely excited. And it's funny, I was just talking to a gentleman from Africa who was interested in our services, and he found my book by typing the word hyphen because in Africa, where there aren't as many resources— people don't say marketing, they say hype. So Mm. what I realized was it's kind of a luxury to think that hype is a negative thing. This Mm. idea that you do marketing, step A, step B, step C, and you're going to get D. People who don't have a direct route to success, they need to think in unusual ways. They need to Mm. think like hype artists. And I don't think of hype as negative. To me, hype the way I define it is simply generating a great deal of emotion among a group of people to get them to take an action that you want them to take. And that can mean a positive action. It can mean a negative action. But hype itself mm. is amoral. There's no inherent moral content. And it's a function of what you apply it to mm. that makes it moral or immoral.
1: You know, as as I dove into the book, I knew I was going to be likely wearing out a pen which i which i did do <laughs> and 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 i say that because right away i saw and recognized some some things that that i have implemented in the past though i i don't know i realized i was being a hype artist. I guess I kind of right. was. And, and, and one of the things in this very first chapter, the first strategy you talk about is something that uh, all my podcast clients, I, I try to get them to understand the importance of. And that's, in your words, picking a fight, this idea of getting people to, to take sides. So talk about this idea of picking a fight and the importance of also picking the right enemy in that process.
0: So it's very interesting. Human beings, most human beings anyway, want to be liked. We want to fit in. We don't want to make waves. And we don't like the idea that to be successful, we need to – that maybe not everyone will like us, that we need to take bold stands that that make people angry. But, you know, there's been – actual anthropological and biological research about how deeply embedded human attraction to an adversarial sort of dynamic is. So, so um, there was an anthropologist who did some really groundbreaking research. He found an alcove on the coast of Africa. And for various reasons that we don't have time to go into <laughs> right now, it's pretty clear that when there was an ex- a mass extinction event of, of, of humanity, Many hundreds of thousands of years ago, there was one group of human beings that were all descended from that retreated to this area and Mm. survived. And it was because there was a very dense population of shellfish there, which is very easy to get. You know, you don't have to hunt for it and that sort of thing. And the only thing keeping people from eating this shellfish was other tribes. So essentially... The humans that survived had simultaneously the ability to bond very tightly with people like them or that they perceived like them mm. based on an artificial thing like a tribe. Right. Mm. And to really hate people that they perceive not being like them. <laughs> and this trait exists in everyone. So if we feel like we're unified with a group of people by I don't know. It it can be really nefarious things like race, and that's something we should fight again. But it might be an idea. It might be that I believe that project management should be simple, not complex, Mm. right? And Mm. that everyone who doesn't believe that is somehow inferior to my point of view. If Mm. you can play with that dynamic and create a very bold stand against an idea or against another guru who's not you, Mm -hmm. For better or worse, that is an extremely attractive thing, and it helps build a following around your ideas.
1: Yeah, related to that, the thing I try to get podcasters to articulate in the introduction of their shows is something along the lines of, I believe that if you want ABC out of life, you have to do X, Y, Z, sort of present this ultimatum. That forces people to pick a side to go, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Yes, you're preaching to the choir. Or no, I vehemently disagree with that. But they're curious enough to want to stick around to hear you defend what you what you believe, right?
0: It's very effective, you know, whether it's true or not. And I'm not saying to lie. But if you frame reality in that way, people Mm -hmm. almost can't resist, you know, wanting to learn more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And the second strategy is also one that I identified with that I feel like I've had a fair amount of success with personally in my business. Describe what you mean by the uh, uh, piggybacking principle.
0: In, in writing this book, I looked at all kinds of people that I consider hype artists. Mm. So really negative people like propagandists and cult leaders and really positive people like civil rights leaders and people in between like rock and roll managers. Mm. And the one thing that they almost all have in common is that they make their success seem spontaneous. They don't always say that directly, but it just seems like their ideas and their being is so wonderful that Mm. armies of people are just coming up from the streets to follow them. Right. But What they're really doing simultaneously is underneath the surface, they're forming very, very strong, mutually beneficial relationships with people who already have followings, people who already have power, people who already have influence, and they're piggybacking off that success. So Mm. While a lot of the l- less sophisticated um, marketers, which we all are as we when we start <laughs> out, we try to build this million person Twitter following or Instagram following person by person by person, mm. the sophisticated hype artist finds someone who has a half million person Twitter following, becomes their best friend, and then does a <laughs> joint venture with them, right. and gains a quarter of their followers overnight. Mm. And it's a much easier way to become successful actually. <laughs>
1: Yeah. In, in the Internet marketing space, that's a fairly common occurrence. I did a virtual summit last year on a particular topic and invited 34 speakers, all with platforms of their own, asking them to invite their tribes to this event that I hosted and increased my email list by 85 percent in the process. It's very
0: smart. Hmm. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, you know, when I think of things like uh, another example in your book, the Spartan Race, I think, well, that was always the Spartan race, but it but it wasn't. It was actually something unsuccessful first. Talk about what we can learn, Michael from from Joe DeSina about getting the uh, quote unquote packaging just right.
0: Yeah, it's you know I, I had the opportunity to interview Joe DeSina, sit down across a table with him, the founder of Spartan race and mm. and um, I was really impressed by his honesty. And his savvy. So the first thing he said to me was, I'm a snake oil salesman.
1: <laughs>
0: and there are very few people who, who will admit that. But what he mm. meant by that wasn't that he's selling people garbage, selling people snake oil. What he meant was he understands how important it, it is to frame and package things that are good for them mm. in a way that they'll accept. Right. And so, you know, Joe DeSino, when he started his business, he um, changed his own life by exercising a whole lot and eating right and all of the things that for the people who don't know what Spartan race is, it's this intense sort of race that helps you become healthier in every aspect of your life by by training for this race. But he named it Peak Race because in his mind it was just so inherently good, meaning his lifestyle and his energy level and everything else had changed so much for the better that he was just convinced that everyone would feel the same way but the problem is running miles and miles and biking and climbing <laughs> rocks and eating nothing but vegetables to train for it while you might feel better it's pretty painful and it's pretty miserable if you if you you know are just accepting it on its own so it failed i mean it didn't do very well and he almost folded it but then he saw the movie 300 which was about the Spartan victory at Thermopylae and he, what he realized was there were all these people getting excited about the rigor of the Spartan lifestyle. So, while it's like, okay, hey, you can eat vegan, you know, eat sparsely and run like crazy and be tired all the time, you know, when you're not exercising and hurt your body and it's peak, well, no one wanted to do that. But when he gave people the ability to feel like a Spartan, to identify like this noble, proud warrior, group and you can be a modern day Spartan in this cushy world suddenly they were part of a tribe they could hold their head Mm. up high suddenly the pain was reframed as a certain sort of pleasure. So he renamed his um, company, you know, Spartan Race. He even takes groups to Sparta. He has people do the Spartan cry. If you hit certain levels, you're a Spartan. And it carries through in everything he does. I, I, when I met him, he had this rock on a chain from Sparta that he carried <laughs> around with him everywhere to, you know, be strength training all the time. But he didn't have a barbell, he had a, a, a big, lumpy rock from Sparta. So he has packaged himself, his company, everything that surrounds him as this Spartan identity. And and his 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 company is massive. It is so successful. And the people who are part of the company, it's not just like they're going to the gym. They get tattoos. They call themselves Spartans. I mean, it's an obsession for these people. And nothing changed except for the packaging.
1: Mm. You know, I'm kind of dealing with that and have always dealt with it to a a degree with this podcast. But as I get set to launch a book that uh, itself espouses reading as a habit and reading for personal growth and why you should do it and how you can make the most of it, I realize I'm fighting a bit of an uphill battle because it's something that most people don't want to do. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm trying to convince them the benefits of. It's funny, in, in preparing the book, it's coming out in August. We had various people look at it and consider it for endorsements. And, and one of those folks was, was Seth Godin. And he wrote back and said, I have a couple of suggestions for your book when it comes to why people don't read that you might want to consider Digging into a little more deeply, and he was exactly right. He said, number one, people don't want to learn. Learning requires acknowledging briefly that you don't know something, and and we're taught to avoid that. Right? It's easier not to learn and simply get back to work. And the other thing he said was, people don't want to change their minds. And so, if a book is going to help you get somewhere you haven't been able to get to on your own, that means you're going to have to change your mind about something. And so. I've really taken those things to heart, and, and in the next five six months, I'm going to have to try to spend some time figuring out how do I get over those humps.
0: <laughs> it's great that that's a great. Those are great comments. You know, it's funny. I've noticed, however, and I'm curious mm. what you think about this. Mm when I was a kid, you know, I've always been a reader. I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be in business. So when I was a kid, it was considered really dorky to read. So I remember going on vacation with my parents and, and wanting a book to read and saying to the cute girl who was behind the uh, help desk, hey, um, is there is there anywhere to buy books around here? I need one for, for a school report because I was embarrassed to say that I read for fun. Right. <laughs> however, you know, however, um, I've noticed that with podcasts like yours, but also So people like Ryan Holiday and things like that, there's a bit of a trend in in personal betterment for reading. Like it's Mm. almost become this elixir. Mm. And I'm wondering why that's happening. I think it's great. And I think you're part of it. Mm. But I I know Ryan Holiday, for example, I know he frames it as like this almost stoic activity. Right. It's like personal betterment. Reading is like this superpower tool that you have. Um, I don't know. I I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, because I have seen a change in, in mm. personal per, in perception of reading.
1: I am finding that mostly among here, here's where I sort of draw the line I guess of demarcation is I see that by and large people who have already experienced some level of success get it more than, than right. most. They understand what got them there, oftentimes involved, admitting they don't know something, admitting they're going to need to to stop and, and take time to learn. And, and they've had success. And so they continue that habit because they've already realized how important that habit is. Yeah. Uh, and then it's those who haven't yet experienced that success that are maybe dabbling in it or might not yet be convinced that that's the thing that could quite possibly take them where they want to go. Does that make sense?
0: I can see that. It does make a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: Well, a lot of times it can be easy to believe, I think, Michael, that in order to get people to take the actions we want them to take, we've got to just impose our will more strongly on them than maybe we have up to now. But that often backfires, doesn't it?
0: It it very often backfires. Mm -hmm. I would say that, if you're in a public forum and you're able to present your ideas as unalterable truths, mm. that's that can be effective, right? Like if you say these are the seven habits of highly effective people that if you follow these habits, you will be highly effective. That's almost a form of what makes religion attractive. You, you mm. can say, oh, I can follow this formula and grab onto it. So in that case, telling people what to do can be effective. But if you're if people perceive that you're trying to get them to do something for your own benefit through force, Mm. there's a psychological phenomenon called reactance. Um, And Jonah Berger talks about this in his new book, uh, which is a very good book, where we will push back extremely hard against things where we feel our autonomy is being taken away, even if it's good for us. Mm. So the way around that is to, and Dale Carnegie talks about this, is make people feel like it's their idea. Ask people questions. Mm-hmm. Um, say, yeah, you know, I, you know, know where you want them to go, but say, hey, um, I was thinking about solving X, Y, and Z problem. Does anyone have any ideas? And have people throw out ideas, and when they Say something that you don't want them, a conclusion that you don't want them to arrive to say, uh-huh, maybe, maybe. And when they arrive at a conclusion closer to where you do want them to go, wow, that's such a great idea. That's fantastic. And before you know it, they'll be coming up with exactly the ideas that that you wanted them to come up with.
1: Mm. Something that caught my attention that I'd love for you to expound on is this idea of not necessarily focusing on promoting the parts of ourselves that everybody agrees are strengths, but maybe the ones that aren't. (laughs) How does that work?
0: Yeah, so it's worth noting that people are attracted to leaders who seem larger than life. Which is why we see these things in People Magazine, like stars. They're just like the rest of us. And they'll be carrying their kitty litter that they just bought from the supermarket. (laughs) Because it's hard for us to believe that that these people that we look up to and who are so idealized do things like that. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. It is important to dial up elements of yourself that you want people to to see as a positive, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the reason that um, Richard Branson, who's been happily married by all accounts for 35 years, rides around with a supermodel on the back of a jet ski because we can all see ourselves in that life and he's an amazing guy or why he hot air balloons. However, Mm -hmm. most of us, including people like Richard Branson, are not larger than life in certain ways. You know, there, there are things about us that we're insecure about, about ourselves. There are things about ourselves that we'd like to hide from view. And what I see a lot of really successful hype artists doing is they flip the script. So instead of just dialing up those strengths that might be like everybody else, they find those things that they're insecure about, their weaknesses, Mm -hmm and usually nestled within that weakness is the exact strength that's gonna make them stand apart and turn them into a character that everyone is fascinated with. So, so a great example that I use in the book is Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol was always a good artist. I mean, he could always draw and, and paint, but other than that, he had everything going against him. I mean, he grew up in the 1940s. He, he got famous in the 60s, but he was a kid in the 40s. He was ridiculously shy probably would be considered social anxiety today. He was gay Mm -hmm. and it was very clear that he was gay. And this was a time where being gay was illegal. I mean, it was uh, considered very strange and, and, you know, on the fringes of society. He had acne, he was balding at a very young age. So what he did was this, he took his shyness and instead of saying, I'm gonna go to Toastmasters and I'm gonna get out of my shyness (laughs) and this and that, what he did was he created this communication style which was very enigmatic so people would say to him the press would say to him why do you paint cans of soup and he would say i like soup in a very quiet voice (laughs) and the press would hover over that well what did he mean was that a comment on commercialism (laughs) that way he didn't have to talk and be you know Mm -hmm. gregarious um you know, he, he he was balding early So instead of getting a toupee Or having the ring around the head That made him look like an accountant He got this garish silver wig That he's still known for So everyone knew he was probably bald But he made it into his signature piece You know, being gay He basically, he went all out with that He created the factory And he had trans people As as members of his coterie I mean, that was considered The most freakish thing ever And, and he made them famous. There are songs written about these people. Mm. And now he's Andy Warhol. So it's almost like making a cartoon character of yourself. It's Mm. like dial up your strengths, but also flip your weaknesses. That's how you turn yourself into an interesting version of yourself. Mm. Kind of take the nuance out of it. And a lot of times the most interesting stuff is in your weaknesses.
1: Talk about a bit about the science, quote unquote, I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, of hype. Uh, I, I love the um, uh, Listerine example that you give and, and, and really the simple thing that that company did to just elevate that, that product many, many years ago. And I, I remember, and I'll, I'll let you let this cat out of the bag instead of giving it away. I remember my mother as when I was a child using this specific word that Listerine put into practice, a word I'd never heard before and only my mother used.
0: Yeah. So so Listerine was the first mouthwash. That was not a product, product category that existed before them. Mm. And, and I actually don't think they were mouthwash at first. It was this disinfectant. You know, Lister was the guy who created disinfectants. Mm. I mean, he was the one who started people washing their hands, you know, um, before surgery and, and things. Mm. So Listerine was, was, a, was a disinfectant. I mean, it was something that got rid of germs and but it wasn't the kind of stuff that killed you it wasn't bleach right i mean you could (laughs) you could put it on your body put it in your mouth and it you know it was it was mildly successful but not very successful and um gerard lambert who really invented the company as we know it and now there are all kinds of mouthwashes that people sometimes like more because they're minty and things like that and listerine doesn't taste great although it's been changed since then Mm. but you know bad breath was not really a problem. Human beings smell. I mean, you know, I mean, we we you just have to wash like we Mm. eat and our breath doesn't smell great. We're much more sensitive to human odors than we used to be because, you know, in the medieval times, no one had bad breath. Right. But there's a condition called halitosis, which is very rare. And it's a real medical condition. It's Mm. like when you have bacteria in your stomach that comes up through your mouth and And your breath smells like a dead body. I mean, it reeks. It's a medical condition. (laughs) So Gerard Lambert found this condition in an obscure medical book, and he started to use it in his advertising just as bad breath. He would say, use this product, which no one knew they had a need for, to eliminate halitosis. You'll never get close to another human being if you have halitosis, halitosis, halitosis. (laughs) And suddenly everyone was terrified that their bad breath it, it was no longer bad breath. It was halitosis. It was this very, you know, difficult thing. So, I mean, Listerine became Listerine. It's, yeah. it's you know, so the idea is the more common your concept is a lot of time, There are two kinds of ideas in the world. There are mm-hmm. ideas that are really groundbreaking and that's why they're mm-hmm. effective. And if something is truly groundbreaking, I don't mean, hey, I think my ideas are great. I mean, paradigm shifting, mm-hmm. Sometimes people have trouble accepting those ideas because they're too new. And in that case, you need to radically simplify them. But if your ideas are common and that doesn't mean bad, there are a lot of ideas that are a lot like everyone else's that are still very useful and very good. Right. Mm. Then putting a bunch of scientific sounding jargon around it serves as an indicator of authority. Mm. So, you know, Simon Sinek, who basically has a book, Start With Why, and it's you know, perfectly good book, but he's basically just giving another argument for do what you love with some nuances. Mm. He talks about dopamine and neuroepinephrine and the bonding that happens when you start with Y and this and that. And as a result, a guy who, I mean, my, my mom could have given me that advice. Love what you do. Start with the reason why you're doing something. <laughs> Suddenly, he's this guru to hang on to and, you know, this and that. And um, what's funny about him is he never was a science guy at all, not even a social scientist. He was an ad man. Mm. So uh, the connections are myriad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, strategy number 10 of the 12 in the book is about incorporating drama in theater. Why is it important, Michael, for professionals to learn to seed the, the pleasure, to quote you, they deliver with doses of, of discomfort?
0: This was something in my research that surprised me. A, a certain portion of what I included in the book were things that I used for my clients mm-hmm. and myself that I confirmed with the research. This was really a surprise to me. So it turns out that when you deliver nothing but pleasure and good feelings to people, they're not as emotionally attached to you and Mm. what you do Mm. as when you see that pleasure with small doses of discomfort and at, at its extreme. You know, Tony Robbins, because he's a really good hype artist, however you feel about his ideas, he is an incredible generator of emotion that gets Mm -hmm. people to buy things. Mm -hmm. He has these firewalks. And if you asked one of his fans, they would say that the reason that the firewalks are so important is that it 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 makes you confront your fears and, and, and this and that. However, the firewalks help Tony Robbins more than anyone else. What Tony Robbins is really good at is getting people into A euphoric state Mm -hmm. At his events Which puts them They're sure they're going to change their lives And they buy a lot more of his products While they're there And then when they leave They usually fall short And then come back And so there are all kinds of examples of this I mean there are religious cults Who have you walk over hot coals Andy Warhol used to always inject Small doses of Like when he would have his happenings He would put strange sounds And (laughs) disorienting lights so, am I telling you, as a listener or a business person, that you need to make people walk over hot coals? No, I, I'm not. However, we always—many of us think in terms of there, there's this phrase that we all know: over what is it? Over promise. No, no, under promise and over deliver. Mm. And I would say, I question the wisdom of that. You should always do a good job for people, but I find that when your customers and clients say jump and you say how high, <laughs> people become very used to mm. that level of service very, very quickly. Mm. And that becomes the new norm, right? So you always have to deliver, but it's also important if you're trying to really attract people to you, that you make them uncomfortable at certain points. Mm. It's exactly what Seth Godin was saying. Point out where they're going wrong. Mm. Call them out for their bad ideas Mm. politely, but but do it. Make them do some of the work, you know, create tools for them and then say to them, this is going to be really hard for you to change. You need to show up and do the work. Mm. And Mm. if they don't tell them and give them a lot of work to do. Mm. And if you can seed your delivery with doses of discomfort, it's seductive. People will come back for more.
1: I'm so happy to hear you say that, in part, because as I addressed Seth's uh, suggestions in, in going back to the book, that's exactly how I addressed them. <laughs> Is that how you just described? <laughs> so I'm, exactly. uh, I guess, I, guess I, did, I, I did well there. Well, I, I've got a couple of questions, uh, Michael, I want to ask you uh, that aren't directly related to the book. Before I do that, anything else from the book you want to make sure we know or, or walk away with today?
0: I guess the only thing is that the reason I wrote this book, I mean, a lot of people have asked me, why would you write a book teaching people how to be more like propagandists and cult leaders and this and that? And some people have even gotten angry. Mm. And the reason I wrote it was because, especially in recent years, I have been perturbed, to say the least, by people with bad intentions who just take to hype so naturally that they're that their bad ideas get a lot of traction and i think it does a lot of harm to the world and i think even though these ideas have no moral content they're not good or bad on balance immoral people take to them more easily because they they see the world as it really is and it's just extremely important to me that All of the people out there who are creating good businesses and great works of art and great causes get really comfortable with drawing attention to themselves and getting people emotional around their ideas Mm. and then learning how to do it. So if there's anything that I want them to take from the book, it's that I want to make a case that this is desirable for you if you're doing something great. And yeah, the book basically has a blueprint for doing all of it once you're convinced of that.
1: Well, I had a conversation a few weeks ago with uh, Alex Kantrowitz, who wrote a book called Always Day One, where he basically devotes a chapter to each of the five tech giants and what it is they do so well and how we as, as entrepreneurs and business owners can can learn from them. So many are and and for a lot of good reason are saying big tech is bad and you know four of the five that the book covers are under investigation for one reason or another right now. Right, but they are successful and they got that way by doing certain things, and we would be remiss not to learn what those things are. And I think that's, 100%. that's essentially what you're saying yeah. in, in regard to this topic. Right.
0: We can pretend all day long that Well, Google, Facebook and Twitter, I'm so against what they do that I'm just going to ignore what they do and try to do business a different way. But imagine if you harnessed dopamine the way that they did Mm. for delivering clean water to every person on Earth
1: Mm. Mm. and
0: addicting people to that concept. Would that be a bad thing?
1: Not at all.
0: It would be a wonderful (laughs) thing. So Mm. learn from them. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I know you love to read. We've talked a bit about that. Give us some insight, Michael, into your history with reading and in the impact that books have had on your life. And maybe how how has the habit of reading consistently and intentionally, would you say, played a role in your success if it indeed has?
0: It has, without a doubt. When I was a kid, I never wanted to be in business. I mean, I I own a business uh, now and I love it. Mm -hmm. But I'm not one. You know, there are two kinds of business people. There are business people who love the game of business. You know, if if the opportunity is in telemarketing or sheet Mm -hmm. metal or ball bearings, that doesn't matter because it's a Mm -hmm. function of that game of business. For me, business is a vehicle for my stuff, for my ideas, for for Mm -hmm. things that I'm interested in, which is, you know, what people might call marketing, what I call hype, which is content, which is, you know, these sorts of things. So when I was a kid, I wanted to be a novelist. I mean, I, I was obsessed with books. I mean, my mom read to me every night and we read the Narnia books together and we read, you know, Roald Dahl. And then I moved on from that and I, I, I read all that stuff myself. And then I was really into Stephen King. And, uh, you know, I've just always been a reader and I read mostly fiction. However, we had an encyclopedia at home and my mom used to make fun of me when I was a kid. I used to sit on the toilet and read uh, the encyclopedia. <laughs> you know, that was my. Uh, you
1: know, so um, you had to say that right as I took a sip of coffee too,
0: <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so you know, I've I've always been a reader, and um, I guess as I've gotten older, I realized that that love of reading has just been a bit of a superpower for me because. Mm. I, the way I work is that I like to digest lots of inputs from different sort of sources and make connections between them. Mm. So I think one thing that I do that has helped me, which I don't think it's enough just to read business books. I mean, I know you talk to to a lot of business book readers. I think you should read business books because mm-hmm. there's a lot of knowledge in them. Sure. But I also think if everyone is reading, like, for example, a great book is launched by Jeff Walker. It has a blueprint mm-hmm. for selling digital courses and everyone who's doing that should read it. But if that is the only book you read and you feel like your eyes have been opened and you're not reading books that aren't business books, Hmm. then you're just doing the same thing that everybody else is doing (laughs) and you lose your competitive advantage. So, Hmm. so I think I still, I read business books, but I read fiction still. I read history. I read certainly a lot of strange books that I read work, their way into the hype handbook. I mean, I, you know, Andy Warhol came from a biography on Andy Warhol that I happen to be reading. And that's mm. not something I would have read for business purposes, right. for example. So, um, I don't know. It's everything to me. Sometimes I'm, I'm unusual. I sometimes feel guilty for reading so much because <laughs> I, I'm like, I should be working right now. <laughs> I identify with that. <laughs>
1: uh, is there a book or two that stands out as uh, over the course of your career as, as having uh, left a lasting impression on you? What's, what's maybe a book or two that you occasionally find yourself recommending to, to other people or is there one?
0: There's a lot. Yeah, there's tons we could talk for hours on this because I'll go into every <laughs> one of these fields that I just mentioned. But I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna focus on a couple that um are, are kind of tied to the topic, you know, at hand. There are two books that were really formative in developing my sort of view on mass psychology that I call hype. Mm. One of them and they're both good reads, although they're 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 not business books per se. One is called The Crowd by Gustav Le Bon. So it's old. It's from 1896, I believe. Okay, Pretty short. So basically this guy, Gustave Le Bon, was a young man when the Paris Commune happened, which was this group of people who took over Paris for a brief time. And it was like proto-communism. It it, it was after the French Revolution, but they were going to create this egalitarian society in Paris and this and that. And I don't know, a couple months went by and then the French government came in and retook the city and... and, Mm crack down on everybody. So the Paris Commune, who were clearly defeated, just started burning Paris to the ground. Mm-hmm. They started like burning, just going into a frenzy and just burning things for no reason. And Gustav Le Bon saw this and was like, why are, do people behave like this? Like, this is so irrational. They have absolutely nothing to gain by doing this, right? So he basically dedicated the rest of his life to studying this, and he's known as the first crowd psychologist. And it's funny, I was watching the earliest Trump debates, the primaries, Mm -hmm. when no one thought he would win. And I just so I was on a business trip and I just so happened to have this book with me. And I was like sort of flipping through it absentmindedly and reading portions of it and watching the debates. And I became convinced Trump was going to win before any of my friends did. (laughs) I mean, the things he would say was like crowds are extremely susceptible to signifiers of prestige. And when there are no signifiers of prestige, money is an excellent substitute. Mm. It would like say crowds are very susceptible to vague, future focused, easily repeatable phrases. It, it was just crazy. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, this is an example of, of a book that everyone, anyone who wants to drive attention and get people fanatical about their stuff, which mm. I think everyone should do, mm. should read. Um, disclaimer, There's a little bit of mild racism in there because it was written so long ago, but just discard it, you know? There's another book that's more recent called Brainwashing by Kathleen Taylor. It's an academic book, but some academic books are really dense and and boring and (laughs) hard to read. This one one is not, it's actually interesting, and she's a good writer. Uh, Basically, this woman studies the phenomenon of brainwashing, including whether it even exists, whether there's such a thing as brainwashing, Mm. But in doing so, she really lays out some interesting things about the inaccuracies in human perception and how our thoughts and opinions get changed and sort of fixed in the mud by certain kinds of leaders. So that was another if you really want to go deep into this stuff and get a competitive advantage, those are two really good books to read. Great suggestions. Thank you.
1: Well, finally, uh, Michael, as you look ahead to the rest of the year, what's uh, got you excited? Yeah.
0: So, of course, the book and and of course, you know, we're doing our typical agency projects where um, companies come to us and um, we help them help them become kind of the dominant figure in their niche so they can get more business and, and things like that. The thing I'm most excited about beyond that is I just launched a program called the hype Unitory. It's part university and part laboratory. Mm. So in the wake of the book, um, fortunately, it's it's built some buzz. Mm. And a lot of people are coming to me and wanting to bring attention and emotion to their projects and and further their projects. But as an agency, you know, there are a lot of people who really can't afford us. And also beyond that, there are a lot of people who want to be armed to do this stuff themselves, not mm. have someone do it for them. Right. However, as you know, yeah, I mean, my I, I I'm really driven by the mission of getting lots and lots of good, well-meaning people to become hype artists mm-hmm. instead of all the bad people who are <laughs> out there. So, yeah, I, I um created a program where it's by application. You apply. And if, you, if you're admitted, I'll do a few cohorts of it. You work with me, 10 to 15 people. And what we do is I give you the tools to master each of the modules. We sort of customize them together as a group for each person. And then between sessions, everyone goes out and implements, does experiments with them on their own. And then you mm. come back and we review what happened in the data and we hone it further. So by the end, you have a working, you know, hype campaign that you've created and you've crafted. So that's been mm. a whole lot of fun. And the other thing I'm excited about is something I do all the time. It's it's a little similar to what you do, but but different. It's called the uh, the Hype Book Club. So because I read all of these crazy <laughs> interesting books people I, I recommend them to people so mm. it's it's called hypereads.com mm. and uh, if you sign up I, I send recommendations of all these counterintuitive books and it's become a bit of a community we trade a lot of emails and communicate oh, a lot so very cool I always enjoy that yeah
1: awesome well the book again is called the hype handbook 12 indispensable success secrets from the world's greatest propagandists self-promoters cult leaders mischief makers and boundary breakers his name is Michael F Shine, Michael. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Really enjoyed having you. And as I said, I wore out a pen reading this book. I recommend it to everyone listening.
0: Well, I know you read a lot of books, so that's an absolute, you know, an absolute honor. And it was great being here.
1: As I said earlier, I got a lot out of this book, and I think you will too. If you've got an idea, a product, or service that you're trying to spread the word about, start with the hype handbook. For a summary of what Michael and I chatted about today and to get quick access to the links and other resources mentioned, check out the page on my website dedicated to this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 361 for episode 361. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I hope you'll consider pre-ordering a copy of my book called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. You can do that when you go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash book. My book, by the way, set to release on August the 31st. In the coming weeks, we'll be hearing from authors like Megan Hyatt Miller, John Acuff, and John Lee Dumas. And next week, we'll talk with Mark Hirschberg, author of the book The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead.